Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 29 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to continue to talk about Article 1, Section 11 of the Michigan Constitution. But before I do, you're a spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review the Michigan case law, which helps you to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice... You would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. So this first case that we're going to talk about, I'm pretty excited about. Because, listen, 99% of the time, the cases that I discuss for us to understand our Michigan Constitution better... Well, they're going to be cases that were heard by Michigan courts, whether they're the Michigan Court of Appeals or they make it all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court... And on rare occasions, I will review a lower court's ruling, and in even rarer occasions, I might even review, like, the Federal Court of Appeals' Sixth Circuit cases. But I almost never get an opportunity to review a United States Supreme Court case. I do, however, in this instance, because a Michigan criminal defendant successfully appealed their case all the way up to the highest court in our nation. The case of Michigan versus Summers takes on a Michigan constitutional provision and gets analyzed and debated by the United States Supreme Court in 1981. But here's why, at least in my legally dorky opinion, this case is so fascinating. Search and seizure protections cross both judicially philosophical lines. So if you're a conservative, you support protections against unreasonable searches and seizures because you believe a man's home is his castle. A judicial, a conservative judicial philosophy wants to protect the sanctity of a person's house. On the other hand, if you're a liberal judicial, or if you have a liberal judicial philosophy, you naturally suspect the police of infringing on your individual rights, and those infringements are predicated upon racial intolerance. So when you get this case decision, we have a smattering of judicial philosophies both in favor of the government and in favor of the defendant. Let me go ahead and and spoil the plot for you. In a 6-3 decision, the United States Supreme Court finds in favor of the police officers and that a search of the criminal defendant was not a violation of either the United States Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment or the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 11 protections. 
But here's the breakdown of who sided for whom. Ruling in favor of the government, there were two very loud and proud liberals, John Paul Stevens and Byron White. But they were joined by four other justices who were on the conservative side, William Rehnquist, Sandra Day O'Connor, Lewis Powell, and Harry Blackman. But on the other side of the case, the three justices that were siding with the criminal defendant and, and argued that this should be considered to be a violation of the reasonable search and seizure protection, well, two out of the three were Eisenhower appointees. And if you recall, President Eisenhower was a conservative Republican. He appointed conservatives uh, Justice Potter Stewart and William Brennan. But there was another particular uh, justice, liberal Justice Thorgood Marshall, who was appointed by a Democrat. He also sided with the two conservatives, thinking that this should have been a protection on behalf of the individual. So this court opinion does not break down by ideological philosophies, and that's why I find it so fascinating to review for you. So let's get into it. Detroit police officers were about to execute a search warrant of a home in Detroit looking for narcotics when they encountered Defendant Summers leaving the home that was about to be searched. They requested his assistance to gain entry into his home and detained him while they searched his premises, the house. After finding narcotics in the basement and ascertaining that Defendant Summers indeed owned the home, the police arrested him searched him, and found an envelope containing 8.5 grams of heroin. He was subsequently charged with possession of heroin in addition to the drugs found in his home. At Defendant Summers' trial, the judge determined that detaining Mr. Summers while the police executed the search warrant of his home was a violation of both his Fourth Amendment and Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 11 protection against unreasonable search and seizure. Why? Because it was determined that detaining him without an arrest warrant while the police searched his home was a violation of the seizure portion of the search and seizure protection. And here's what makes everything so crazy. Both the Michigan Court of Appeals and the Michigan Supreme Court ruled in favor of Mr. Summers. They agreed that detaining him without an arrest warrant was a seizure of his freedom and ability to be secure in his own home. But it's the United States Supreme Court that overruled all of those Michigan courts. The United States Supremes, in a 6-3 decision, ruled that the Detroit police had every right to detain Mr. Summers without an arrest warrant, thus overruling the Michigan Supreme Court. What the United States Supremes had to debate was whether the initial detention of Mr. Summers violated his constitutional right to be secure against an unreasonable seizure of his person. But more specifically, whether the officers had the authority to require him to re-enter the house and to remain there while they conducted their search. Because there was no probable cause to arrest Mr. Summers at the moment he was leaving his house, then does asking him to come inside and stay in his house with the police while they searched his home, is that an unreasonable seizures of Mr. Summers? Well, obviously, as we've learned, the answer to that answer is no, that was not an unreasonable seizure of Mr. Summers. But why? 
because the United States Supreme Court has created two exceptions to the probable cause requirement for a warrantless arrest. A warrantless arrest. Those two reasons are number one, articulable facts, and number two, law enforcement interests. So let's talk about the articulable facts aspect. The United States Supreme Court found it particularly important in our case here that the police had first obtained a search warrant to search the defendant Summers' home for the narcotics. These justices thought that the fact a neutral and detached magistrate had found probable cause to believe that the law was being violated in that house, well, they thought that was very important. The magistrate, as this court reasoned, had already found good reason to authorize what the justices considered a substantial invasion of the privacy of the person who resides in the home. And let's be real honest. Having anyone, but especially a police officer, rummaging through your home is most definitely an invasion of privacy. So for a neutral and detached magistrate, as opposed to the officers in the field, for that magistrate to have made the critical determination that the police should be given a special authorization to thrust themselves into the privacy of a home, which is what a search warrant is, well, the Supreme Court considered this to be a heavy favor in satisfying the articulable facts exception. Next, the court believed that this type of detention is not likely to be exploited by the police or unduly prolonged in order to gain more information, because the information the officers seek normally will be obtained through the search and not through the detention. So what does this really mean? The court's rationale here is that the police already have a search warrant, and they were able to obtain that search warrant based on sufficient enough facts for a magistrate to approve the search warrant. So when the police inevitably do find the drugs, they're going to have the right to arrest the homeowner based on finding exactly what the search warrant said would be found. In this instance, it's drugs. Because Mr. Summers owns the home, they know he owns the home, and they believe they're going to find drugs in the home, holding him so that they can arrest him once the drugs have been found is a logical conclusion to make. Even if the drugs aren't found and the search warrant fails to turn up what is expected, well, to be detained in the person's house, our United States Supreme Court justices held, well, they thought that was far less inconvenient to and imposed a far smaller indignity upon our defendant, as opposed to taking him all the way downtown to a police station to be questioned and, and so on and so forth. But there is also a law enforcement interest the United States Supreme Court found. In this case, the Supreme Court articulated three interests. In no particular order, they are as follows. First, holding Mr. Summers during the execution of the search warrant protects against defendant Summers becoming a flight risk and disappearing. The idea here is a person who knows the police has a search warrant for his home to look for drugs is going to know those drugs will be found and will be arrested. As such, that person is going to go into hiding. If, however, the police can detain the subject you know, during the execution of the search warrant, then they need not fear him disappearing and evading arrest. 
Second, there is an interest in minimizing the risk of harm to the officers. The execution of a warrant is the kind of transaction that may give rise to sudden violence and frantic efforts to destroy evidence. Therefore, the United States Supreme Court held, being able to detain the subject during the search ensures safety of the officers and minimizes the possibility of flushing the drugs down the toilet when the police aren't looking. Thirdly, the orderly completion of the search may be facilitated if the occupants of the home are present. The resident's self-interest may induce them to open locked doors or locked containers to avoid the use of force that is not only going to damage the property, but might also delay the completion of the task at hand, you know, that, that search. And I'm glad that the United States Supreme Court addressed this last reason because, quite honestly, it was the first thing that came to my mind when I initially read the fact pattern of the case. It certainly makes sense to ask the homeowner to provide entry into the home, otherwise it's going to cause the police to use force to enter the home. And when in the house, executing that search warrant, it makes sense to have the homeowner there to unlock doors, cabinets, or other containers for otherwise prevents the police from destroying said doors or cabinets or other containers to effectuate the search warrant. The six justices of the United States Supreme Court believed that if there was sufficient evidence that a citizen's residence is harboring contraband, like drugs, so much so that a judicial officer, like a magistrate, would authorize this type of invasion of a citizen's privacy, then it's constitutionally reasonable to require that same citizen simply to remain with the police while they execute a valid search warrant. Therefore, the Fourth Amendment, and by extension our, Article 1, Section 11 of the Michigan Constitution, does permit that a warrant to search for contraband founded on probable cause will implicitly carry with it the limited authority to detain the occupants of the premises while a proper search is conducted. Ultimately, because it was lawful to require respondent Mr. Summers to re-enter and to remain in his house until the evidence establishing probable cause to arrest him was found, and again, that probable cause to arrest him would be finding the drugs in his home, his arrest and the search incident thereto, meaning searching him and his person and his pockets and finding the heroin, well, that is all constitutionally permissible. All right, how do I put this into maybe layman's terms? The, the court was fine with allowing the police to detain Mr. Summers without an arrest warrant because, our court held, when the police are searching for drugs based upon a valid search warrant, it's of minimal intrusion to hold the homeowner until either the drugs are found, in which case he's going to be arrested, and if the drugs are not found, he's free to leave. And the court was not afraid that this would lead to any sort of abuse of police power, as the police are only there in the first place because of a valid search warrant. The majority of justices really liked the idea that as a valid search warrant having been executed by a neutral and detached third party, you know, this being the, the, the magistrate, that the Supremes felt that if the police can produce enough evidence to convince a magistrate to sign a search warrant, there's likely going to be something found. You, you could say if a search warrant is signed, there's something there to be found. Add in other justifications, such as risk of flight, risk to the officer's well-being, and risk of destruction of the drugs. 
well then holding a homeowner really does become a minimal intrusion. What I really wished the six justices who signed onto this report or, you know, this, this, this majority opinion would have hammered home, which I think was glossed over and, and taken um, as obvious was this. If the police couldn't hold Mr. Summers while they were searching the home, if they would have just said, you know, effectively, hey, thanks for opening up the house for us to search it, you're free to leave. Well, when they do inevitably find the drugs, they have to go back to the magistrate, show the magistrate the drugs they found in Mr. Summers' home, and ask the magistrate to now issue an arrest warrant for having drugs in his home, exactly as they predicted they'd find Hence the reason they got a search warrant in the first place. I think the Supremes should have elaborated in their explanation of Mr. Summers being a flight risk that, while that's absolutely true and accurate, the court should also have made clear you now have the evidence for a search warrant. But if Mr. Summers goes into hiding and he's long gone by the time the arrest warrant is executed, well then it makes no sense to add this additional step, which is both time and labor intensive. One other less important but still relevant point. Asking Mr. Summers to open up his house for the police to search it. By law, the police did not have to ask Defendant Summers to allow entry into his home, as the law does not require it. The officer to whom a warrant is directed, or any person assisting him, may break any outer or inner door or window of a house or building, or anything therein, in order to execute the warrant if, after notice of his authority and purpose, he is refused admittance, or when necessary to liberate himself or any person assisting him in the execution of the warrant. The police could have waited until Mr. Summers left his house and then broke their way into his home to execute the warrant. But instead, they asked him to both open up the home for them as well as to stay with them while they search the home. This seems to me like it is a much more reasonable process for the police to ask of a homeowner than to simply go blasting into a house, knocking in the door and destroying the house, trying to search for the drugs, when in this instance, and, and, and what I think is reasonable in most instances, is to ask the homeowner to please allow the police in to you, because again, they've, they've got a valid search warrant, and ask the uh, the homeowner to stay with them while they go through and, and are searching for the drugs. All right, but what about the three justices who dissented in this case? What was their beef? I'm going to really, really oversimplify their reasoning by simply saying they believed it waters down the protections against unreasonable seizures. They believed that holding someone while their home is being searched lowers the overall threshold of what unreasonable or reasonable seizures would mean. They thought that it lowered the standard of what the government must demonstrate before justifying the holding of a person without an arrest warrant. It was their opinion the only real justification for holding someone without an arrest warrant was merely to ensure the safety of the police officer in a limited in time and degree of, of intrusion. That when this is done, it's done reasonably related to the scope of why the police stopped the person. But the minority opinion here stated, 
this authority being given to the police could result in a detention of several hours, thus making the detained person a prisoner in his own home for a potentially very long period of time. Worse yet, these three justices opined, the police could protract the time they searched the home in hopes that they may find something worth arresting the homeowner for, or they might get the homeowner to reveal where the drugs are hidden simply to bring the search to an end. These three justices did not believe holding a homeowner during a search was reasonably related to the actual search of the home. So what do you think, listeners? Remember, the protection of the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 11, and our United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment, is to protect a person against government's unreasonable search and seizure. Is holding a homeowner while the police are searching his home pursuant to a legally valid search warrant, is that an unreasonable seizure of the homeowner? There's no right or wrong answer here. I really just want you to, you know, get those thoughts rolling on what you would consider to be reasonable and unreasonable. It's conceded by everybody involved that the detaining of a homeowner is a seizure, but the key determination is whether this is a reasonable or unreasonable seizure. Okay, our last case for today's podcast uh, is going to be People versus Sherbine, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1984. This is a situation where the police are looking to obtain a search warrant for the purposes of wiretapping an individual who may be confessing to a murder. Although the facts of the case are a bit convoluted, what I was able to piece together was that defendant Sherbine was charged with murder and apparently was making collect phone calls to a fellow by the name of Joseph Bradway. And I guess Mr. Bradway notified the local police that, that defendant Sherbine was calling him, you know, Bradway, and discussing in detail his involvement in the murder. And when I say his involvement in the murder, I mean defendant Sherbine's involvement in the murder. So for that reason, the police went to a local magistrate and required a, and requested that a search warrant for the purposes of recording the calls between Defendant Sherbine and, and, and Bradway be allowed. Allegedly, these recordings incriminated Defendant Sherbine, hence the reason why the prosecutor wanted to introduce them as evidence for a jury to hear. But the defense attorney, on the other hand, challenged the validity of the search warrant because the attorney believed it violated the reasonable search and seizure requirements of our state's constitution's Article 1, Section 11. Both the trial court, the Court of Appeals, and now, here in the case we're talking about, the Michigan Supreme Court, they all agreed that how this search warrant was obtained was done in violation of Article 1, Section 11. But here's how. There's a statute on the books which governed how a magistrate could allow for a search warrant to be issued, which would satisfy the reasonableness standard of the Michigan Constitution. It reads as follows. The magistrate's finding of reasonable or probable cause shall be based upon all the facts related within the affidavit made before him. The affidavit may be based upon reliable information supplied to the complainant from a credible person, named or unnamed, so long as the affidavit contains affirmative allegations that the person spoke with personal knowledge of the matters contained therein. The question presented to the Michigan Supreme Court was whether the affidavit in support of the search warrant 
satisfied the requirements of that second sentence of the statute. The Supremes point out that it is well established that before a search warrant may be issued, the law enforcement officer who is seeking the search warrant must establish probable cause to believe that incriminating evidence may be found in a specific location. This showing of probable cause is generally accomplished by a sworn affidavit setting forth all the facts known through personal observations and hearsay to the officer. In the state of Michigan, the required contents of an affidavit is provided for in statute. There are three requirements. They are as follows. The requirements for a search warrant include, one, the affidavit, when based on informant-supplied information, must contain affirmative allegations that the informant spoke with personal knowledge, and two, the affidavit must set forth facts from which one may conclude that the informant is credible. This means there must be proof of the informant's credibility presented in the affidavit whenever it is based on informant-supplied information. Now, let me stop here for a moment to elaborate. The naming of the informant is a factor to be considered in assessing credibility. However, it is not the end-all be-all. The statute requires that in every case, the credibility of the informant must be shown. And three... The information must be shown to be reliable. And the legislature has made it clear, probable cause is not established unless and until all three of these elements are met. And the way an informant's credibility is shown is by an assertion of facts tending to support a finding of credibility. While proof of credibility, the court found, may be accomplished in different ways, Facts tending to show credibility must appear on the face of the affidavit. But in this case, our Michigan Supreme Court said, no facts showing the informant's credibility had been put forward in the affidavit. To the contrary, the Michigan Supreme Court believed the affidavit failed to meet the requirements of informant credibility and informational reliability because nothing was shown that the informant here was a credible person. The court said there was no facts tending to show he was credible, no even assertion that he was credible, and that the affidavit failed to just simply address that there was any reliable information about the phone conversations. Therefore, the court held the statutory violation was clear. The statute requires proof that the informant supplying the information must be credible. Since the affidavit was deficient under the statute, the warrant was invalid, and the tape recordings were properly suppressed by the trial court judge. Well, all right, so that's going to do it for episode number 29 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. I think I may be able to wrap up this Article 1, Section 11 review on the next podcast. Maybe two, it's as yet to be determined. But our next podcast is going to continue to evaluate the myriad of situations where the police search and or seize illegal contraband without having first obtained a search warrant. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so either at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter at TonySnyder. I'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. 
Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.